following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. All right, please turn to Mark chapter 1, page number 836. This is actually, believe it or not, the last message from Mark chapter 1. We finished before the end of the year. I'm so excited. While you're turning, let me also just point out, uh, in case you didn't see them yet, we have Josh and Allison Stonehouse visiting with us this morning, so it's good to have them. Well, it's good to have Allison and Jackie, and we're happy that Josh brought them, but uh, make sure you say hi to them before uh, they take off this morning. They're just in town for the weekend. You're in Mark chapter 1, if you will, look at verse 35. We'll read verses 35 to 45 together, and then we'll go to the Lord in prayer. Mark writes, And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him, and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. And he said to them, Let us go on to the next towns, that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. And he went throughout all Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And a leper came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, said to him, If you will, you can make me clean. Moved with pity, he stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him and he was made clean. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. But he went out and began to talk freely about it. And to spread the news so that Jesus could no longer openly enter a town, but was out in desolate places, and people were coming to him from every quarter. Let's pray. Jesus, we've taken these previous three Sundays, and now again today, to just consider your heart. It is so easy for us to read these words and and to read them as a story. Some, things we've read probably dozens of times in the past and never really stopped and thought about it, it's easy to read about you and yet miss you in the process of reading. And so, Lord, as we are here in your word today, as we're pausing, purposefully looking at your heart, help us to see you. Help us to to understand you and to to really know what makes you tick and, and, and why you did the things you did so that we can then live our lives out in the same way. Lord, we confess and admit that we live our lives very differently than you. We have, for whatever reason, probably just our own stupidity and our our commitment to ourselves as the greatest idol in our lives. We have purposefully chosen to not be like you in so many areas. And each of these sermons has exposed a different facet of that idolatry. And so today we come once again and we ask that you will show us our idolatry, show us our selfishness, help us to see it, expose it to us, and then convict us and change us, we ask. Lord, thank you for what you have done for us. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. Uh, Jamie and I have lived in Virginia Beach now for just a little under 10 years. I was doing the math this week trying to figure it out. We lived in Chesapeake for a couple years prior, so all in all we've been here for over a dozen years now. It's kind of hard to believe, 
Uh, we spent the first three years and a bit living somewhere right off of Lenhaven Parkway down near Stumpy Lake. And then we spent the last six years living over in the Red Mill area. And in between those two times, as most of you know, we spent about 15 months living in the suburbs of Chicago, or just, I often just say we lived in Chicago. I mean, if you're from a big city, you know what I mean by that, just the suburb area. And so over the past six years or so, Jamie and I have found it interesting to, on a number of points, kind of examine, compare life in Chicago versus life in Virginia Beach. And if you're from anywhere other than here, which probably makes up 98% of you in the room, then you do the same, I'm sure. But when it comes to Chicago, we think about a number of areas. For example, we think about food. If you compare the food in Chicago to the food here in Virginia Beach, I'm sorry, but Chicago wins hands down, right? Because there's just nothing local around here. There's plenty of Outbacks and Wendy's and all that other stuff, but to get real authentic local food, you can't, you can't beat Chicago. For example, if you've never lived in Chicago, then you don't know what an Italian beef is. Was this given to me for a reason? Because it's not working. There we go. Ooh, look at that. And all the men immediately salivated, and the ladies are like, what is that? Uh, I don't really know how to describe it to you. It's just a bunch of shaved beef on bread with peppers and cheese if you want it, okay? It's delicious. And if you want, they'll even put an Italian sausage underneath of it to mix the two together. Or, or even better than that, if you're in Chicago, then obviously you have to get a deep dish Chicago pizza. And I'm telling you, never go to Uno's. Uno's is not Chicago pizza, just for the record, all right? Real Chicago deep dish pizza is made up of a number of components. One, the the crust is almost biscuit-like. Not in taste, but in consistency, okay? It's almost biscuit-like. And then they, they flip everything upside down, so all the meat is at the bottom. And then they put, no lie, about a half inch to three quarters of an inch of mozzarella cheese on top of that, covered by the most delicious marinara sauce the world has ever seen, Okay? You of you in here know what I'm talking about. And your first bite, oh, it's so good. And you choke on the cheese because it's like half in your mouth and half in your throat. And you're, you're gagging, but it's so good. And it's so thick. It's, it's like this thick that you at most can eat two pieces. And if you eat two pieces, you're going to feel it later. All right? I'm going any further than that. All right? So comes to comes to food, Chicago wins, hands down, no question about it. But, but when it comes to, to something like the issue of government, I got to say, Virginia Beach wins hands down, no problem. And I'm reminded of, of the differences between Virginia Beach and Chicago every single Tuesday. See, on Tuesday, that's our trash collection day. And so on Tuesday, one man in a truck drives down onto our street, and, and you know, we've got all our trash cans, these big trash cans out by the side of the road, and he's got a, a claw on his truck that reaches out, picks up the can, it dumps it in, puts it down, backs up. He can do our entire street in two minutes, maybe three if he's taking his time. Chicago, on the other hand, is not exactly known for uh, the efficiency and and honesty of its politicians, and so it shows in a number of areas, and and garbage pickup is one of the big ones. See, in Chicago, if you want your trash picked up, the, the day before, the week prior, whatever, you have to go down to the grocery store, and you have to buy a sheet of garbage stickers. And these are stickers, they're long strips, about three bucks each, you get six stickers to a sheet, so you know, $18 for a sheet of stickers. And on trash day, you have to take your can, which can't be any higher than like this and this big around. You put it out at the side of the road, and you tear off a sticker, and you unpeel it, and you have to wrap it around the handle so it's sticking out like that. And so on 
the trash man, the trash man comes and it's three or four guys on a truck. One guy driving, three guys hanging off the back. And they pull up, and each guy gets out, and he picks up a can by hand. He dumps it in, throws it back in your yard, rips off the sticker, and they go on. It's the most inefficient, expensive, dumb system you have ever seen. But I'll tell you why it, it, it's like this. It's because everybody involved is winning, except for the person whose garbage is being picked up. Because the four guys on the truck, they're all union. And they're making a lot of money, and they've got all their benefits and all that stuff that's going on there. And they don't want to lose their job. They don't want the system to be more efficient, because if the system becomes more efficient, 75% of the workforce is out of work. And so who do they vote for? Who does the union tell them to vote for? It tells them to vote for the people who promise not to change anything. And so those people get in power, and, and for them, their entire goal is to maintain the status quo because if they change anything, then they'll lose their power and it's not going to be good for, for them. And Oh, it's maddening. And you would think, you would think uh, based on how much taxes they collect, that you would have these incredible ser- services and things provided. They, you pay three times the property tax where we lived in Chicago that you pay here. Three times. And you do not get more and better services. You get less and, and worse services there than here. And it coming from Chicago, coming back here and watching that every Tuesday, I see the garbage truck and I'm seriously, I know you think I'm crazy, but I see the garbage truck and I'm like, thank you. That makes so much sense compared to what we had. I I see that and I'm reminded of that old saying that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely on display all around the Chicago area. Well, it's with that saying in mind that I, I want us to consider how different Jesus is when you compare him to other men in positions of power. For most of you with us this morning, you know that we are on part four of a four-part series where we've been looking at the heart of Jesus in ministry here in Mark chapter 1, verses 35 to 45. And just to remind us of what we've seen today, let's review very, very quickly the first uh, three points that we've seen up to this, this section that we're in right now. In verse 35, we saw that like Jesus, we should have a heart that truly loves God. And I took that from verse 35 where we saw Jesus taking time to go out and pray. And I I just said to us that he's not going to pray because he needs things from God. He's going to pray simply because he needs the Father. He needs God. He needs a relationship with him. He needs to commune with him. And he loves his Father, and we should too. That was verse 35. In verses 36 to 39, we saw that like Jesus, we should have a heart that never loses sight of what matters to God. Because while he's out there praying, the disciples come and they say, everybody's looking for you. And they're looking for him because they want to hear more teaching. Yes or no? Probably not. All right. They're probably coming because they want more miracles, more, more people healed, more demons cast out. And Jesus says, no, I want to leave Capernaum. I want to go on to the next town and to the town after that because I want to preach. And why is it that he wants to preach? Do you remember what the text says? Is that's why he came, right? That's why he came. He, he never forgot in the process of ministry that God had sent him to proclaim a message first and foremost, not just to simply do all these little things that he's doing, not to downplay them. But that's why he came. That's what mattered to God, and he never lost sight of that, neither should we. In verses 40 to 42, we saw that like Jesus, we should have a heart that feels compassion for those God loves. And I took that, excuse me, I took that from the story of Jesus healing a leper, this outcast in society. And I'm not going to, 
I'm not going to review that one yet because we'll review it together here in just a moment. But I said that since Jesus shows compassion for these people, these marginalized groups that, that God himself loves and gives special attention to, then, then we should do the same. And, and now finally here in verses 43 to 45, we are coming to the final character trait that we see here that Mark is trying to introduce us to here in this section and that we want to challenge ourselves with this morning as we spend our time in his word. And that is this, that like Jesus, we should have a heart that is humble and obedient before God. So, you know the drill, right? Just like we've done in previous weeks, we're going to walk through the text together, make sure we understand it, see where this statement is coming from, and then we will apply it to our lives at the end. We're going to pick up right where we left off last time in this story of Jesus healing the leper. And, and to get us back to where we ended last time, I want to reset the stage for you just a bit, just kind of to review what we talked about last week, and you'll understand why I'm doing this in a moment. But, but again, remember that Mark simply begins a section by saying that a leper came to him. And I told you that those first five words of verse 40 are so crazy, so out there, that the only word I could think of to describe them is the word scandalous. They are scandalous words that a a leper would come to Jesus, but we don't read them as such because we don't really understand leprosy or think about leprosy in the same way that the first century readers would have. And so I gave you three ways to understand it a little better so that hopefully you would react to it like you should. I said, number one, you need to understand it medically. And medically, I said in the first century, not today, but in the first century, leprosy could refer to a number of contagious skin diseases that generally led to what? The rotting of the flesh. And I showed you those terrible pictures. And now if you weren't here last week, you're thankful, right? Um, it's, it was a horrible, horrible disease. Any, any kind of skin condition that generally led to, to the flesh rotting on you while you were still alive was referred to as leprosy in the first century. Uh, the Jews referred to those people as walking corpses. And I had a, a kid come up to me after the service. I don't remember which one. It wasn't one of mine, I don't think. But uh, they came up to me after the service, and they're like, so are lepers like zombies? I thought about that in the week, and I was like, well, zombies are the the living dead, and lepers were kind of the dying living, if you want to put it in. And it's not actually that far off, really, if you get right down to it. These were, these were people who were covered in sores, and it was an incurable disease, highly contagious, greatly feared. And if you don't appreciate that, then you don't understand what's going on in the scene. I said, secondly, you need to understand it religiously. And what I was referring to there were the commands and laws given by God to Israel for how to identify and respond to cases of leprosy. And so in Leviticus 13, the priests are given very, very detailed instructions about how to identify leprosy in different situations. If if a lesion is this deep and it's changed the hair to this color and it spread this far, then go do this, go do that. Super detailed because they needed to understand how to, how to identify it. And once they had identified it, then they needed to know how to respond to it. And the response is pretty drastic if you get right down to it. They had to wear their clothes different, wear their hair different, cover their lips, cry out, unclean, unclean, if anyone walked near. They had to go outside the camp and And we hear all these things and we're like, wow, that sounds so harsh. But remember that apart from a miracle, there was no cure. And so the only 
The only response is quarantine, and that's what the law prescribed to take them away for the good of the people. Third, then I said you needed to understand it culturally, which is easy once you have it medically and, and, and religiously, because this disease was, was feared and reviled. It was feared because of the appalling and contagious nature of it. You get that now. And it was reviled because in Jesus' day it had become common for people to assume that the reason you had leprosy was because you had what? Sin. So you're really a sinner. And we may not know what your sin is, but that's why you have leprosy. I know it. So you're a bad person and you're just getting what you deserve. They were outcasts. They were shunned, persecuted, ignored. And as a good Jew, you would not have anything to do with one of these people. You wouldn't allow them to come to you. You certainly wouldn't go to them. Now do you remember why these words are so scandalous? A leper's coming to him, and this leper's coming, he's imploring, he's kneeling, and he makes this amazing statement, if you will, you can make me clean, talk about faith, right? He believes that Jesus is able. This isn't sure if he's willing, but Jesus is willing. Jesus' response is amazing. Move with pity. He stretched out his hand, touched him, and said, I will be clean. And with three simple statements, I said, Mark shows us how Jesus acts and responds contrary to everything you would have expected. Because rather than showing a cultural revulsion to this man, he has pity on this man, affection, love. Rather than withdrawing out of fear from from contagion, he reaches out and touches this face, these hands, whatever. Perhaps the first normal human contact he'd had in years. And third, instead of declaring him to be unclean as the law required the priest to do, Jesus declared him clean, I said, as only the Son of God could do. And he says these words to him, I will be clean. And instantly, instantly, Mark says, the leprosy left him and he was clean. Now, this was where we ended last time. But I want you to notice that the story, the scene that we're looking at here doesn't end in verse 42. There's there's a bit more to go because beginning in verse 43, we get to see what happens next with this leper. And Mark writes this, and pay attention to these words very carefully. And Jesus sternly charged him and sent him away at once and said to him, see that you say nothing to anyone, but go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Now, I want you to consider something about verses 43, particularly verse 43, but 43 and 44 that may not have stood out to you the first time you read it. I want you to consider the irony of verse 43. When the man was infected with leprosy, Jesus had every medical, religious, and cultural right at the time to be angry with the man for coming to him, to send the man away at once. And what does he do in verses 40 to 42? He does all the opposite. He shows kindness to the man. He welcomes the man. He talks with him. He touches him. He does every single thing you would not expect. But now, in verse 43, that the man is healed from his leprosy, what does Jesus do now? Now, he speaks sternly to the man, and he sends him away at once. And verse 43 is about as emphatic as you can get. First, Mark tells us that Jesus sternly charged the man. And and this is a a kind of an unusual Greek word that only shows up a few times in this form. It it means to scold, 
or to rebuke or to, to speak harshly to someone. When the man had leprosy, Jesus speaks kindly to him. Now that the guy is clean, now Jesus is, is scolding him, Mark says. Second, notice that Mark tells us that Jesus sent him away at once. And the words at once here, it, it, that's a, a translation of Mark's favorite word. You remember what Mark's favorite word is in this gospel? What word does he use over and over and over and over and over again throughout the gospel? The word immediately, like right now, go. Get out of here. He speaks harshly to the man. He wants to send him away at once. Do you see now what I mean by pointing out the irony of this scene, of this situation? Everything's completely backwards. Because if this had been any other person except for Jesus, the story would have gone opposite. When when the man had leprosy and he was walking up to whoever the other person would be in the scene, the guy would have been like, stay away, get away from me, you leper. And he, he would have been angry. He would have probably backed off, run away, whatever he had to do. If the man was then cleansed, certainly he would be like, oh, well, let's go have coffee. <laughs> Let, let's get together. You're good now. Jesus does everything backwards. When the man has leprosy, he's, come on, kneel. I'll touch you. I'll heal you. I'm showing kindness. Oh, now that you're cleansed, get away from me. Don't do this. Why? Why is Jesus responding in this way? Well, I think the answer to that question is found in Jesus' statement here in verse 44, as well as in what happens in verse 45. But I want you to notice that Jesus issues two commands here to this leper. First, notice that he commands him to say nothing to anyone in verse 44. First command he gives. Now, you have to think back with me in Mark. Is this the first time we've seen Jesus issue one of these silence commands in Mark chapter 1? Yes or no? No, it's not. In fact, this is the third time. The first time we saw one of these silence commands was in Mark chapter 1, verses 23 to 25, when he met the demon-possessed man in the synagogue. Remember that? Immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit, and he cried out, What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. Okay, so this is the first time we saw this. We saw it a second time later that same day at Peter's house. Verse 33 says that the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases, and he cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. And now, for the third time in just one chapter, we see Jesus commanding someone to be quiet about who he is and about what he has done. Now, I addressed this, or why he does this in a sermon back at the end of September, but since none of us remember past yesterday, I thought it would be helpful to at least quickly review one point very briefly from that explanation because you see it on display here. I said to you then that one of the reasons that Jesus regularly commands people to be silent about who he is and about what he's done is because of the rampant misunderstanding about the nature and work of the Messiah there in Israel in Jesus' day. You see, the people of Jesus' day believed that when the Messiah came, he would be a social, political, and military figure who would right all wrongs. 
And so they envisioned him as, as coming and leading an army against Rome to overthrow the Roman occupation. And they pictured him coming and setting up his throne in Jerusalem to make Israel the greatest nation on earth again. He was going to heal all their diseases and, and feed all their stomachs and solve all their problems. And it was going to be heaven on earth. And Jesus knows this. And I think that because of this, Jesus isn't too eager to draw attention to himself just yet. He doesn't really really want the spotlight because (laughs) he knows where the spotlight's going to lead. See, there's going to be a day that's going to come here not too much farther down the road where Jesus will welcome the spotlight. He's going to ride into Jerusalem on a donkey while people put their coats on the ground and shout, Hosanna. He's going, to, he's going to allow this. He's going to welcome that. But we all know where that ends. Jesus isn't, isn't ready for that yet. He doesn't want the people's minds and expectations going places where he isn't yet ready to go. And so as he heals this man, as he interacts with others, it's no wonder that he gives them this, these stern warnings to not tell anyone about him he's he's trying to avoid the spotlight here as much as possible but apparently i think he does this also because he knows what the leper is going to do when you look at verse 45 we we see that while the leper may have had great faith he didn't have great obedience mark says that he went out and began to talk freely about it and to spread the news I mean, it's not just that he like is on the way to the priest. He's like, oh, hey, I used to have leprosy and now I don't. Just wanted you to know. He's like on Twitter. He's on Facebook. He's putting it everywhere. He wants it spread as far and wide as he could. And, and, and you get the sense that he's not just disobeying what Christ has asked him to do. He's disobeying with gusto. He, he's trying to actively doing the opposite. And the result of this for Jesus is that he can no longer openly enter a town. The very thing he just said to his disciples that he wanted to do, I want to go on to this town and the next town to preach in those cities as well. I I don't think the, the leper is trying to cause a problem for Jesus, but he does. His actions end up impeding Jesus's ministry in that area for a time. He probably thought he was doing something good by, by going out and telling what Jesus had done. But in reality, it, it, it caused harm for Jesus. It affected Jesus. Mark tells us that Jesus had to stay out in desolate places and that people were coming to him from every quarter. And if, if you think through the Gospels, you realize that Jesus spends a lot of time out in the middle of nowhere. He just does. And I think it's these kinds of situations that are part of that. He's trying to avoid that. And so you ask me, why does he sternly charge the man? Why does he rebuke him? Well, I'd say it's because in humility, Jesus doesn't want the spotlight before it's time. And he knows what this man will do. Notice the second command now that he gives. He says, go, show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded for a proof to them. Okay, so last week in Leviticus 13, I showed you the detailed instructions for identifying and responding to cases of leprosy. Well, if you get done reading that one, I'm sure none of you did, but if you did and you went on to Leviticus 14, you would see there the detailed instructions for what to do when a person is cleansed from leprosy. And it's really long and involved, so for time's sake, I'm going to give you the Cliff Notes version of it. First, if you had leprosy and you think you're cleansed, you have to go find a priest. I still don't know how they got up with a priest, but you had to go find a priest, and you had to show yourself to him. Look, see, I I used to have leprosy, and now I don't. Now I'm good. 
and, and the priest will look at you, he'll examine you, and if he agrees with your assessment that you are now cleansed from leprosy, the first thing you had to do was to go get two live birds. One of them had to be killed and its blood drained into a bowl. The second one, the live one, you would dip in the blood and then go release it into the wilderness. The priest would then sprinkle you with the blood from the dead bird. You had to shave off all your body hair. You had to take a bath. You had to then wait seven days uh, while something was going on. I forget now exactly what. And at the end of that seven days, you had to make a special offering to God as prescribed there in Leviticus 14. (sighs) It's quite the process. It's quite the process, and this is the process that Jesus is here sending this man away at once to go do. And obviously, it's important to Jesus because he doesn't want him to wait. He doesn't want him to like, hey, why don't you hang out with me for the night? Let's just talk. I want to get to know you. He says, go now. Go now. Go at once to see the priest. And I want you to think about this for a moment with me. Why? Why does this man need to go through this process? Clearly the man is clean, is he not? In verse 42 said that, the leprosy left and he was clean. But in Jesus' actions, you see that in a sense, the man isn't yet clean. You know why he isn't yet clean? Because he hasn't done what God has commanded him. He's not clean until he goes through this ritual in obedience to God's commands. And Jesus is obviously sensitive to this. He wants the man to be obedient to the law. Because he wants the man to leave it and go see the priest at once and do what the law commanded. Biblically speaking, this thing isn't finished until the priest says it is. The Son of God submitting himself to the priest, to God's commands. Jesus is sensitive to that. Talk about humility. Talk about obedience to what God has prescribed. And see, it's because of these things that I say to us then that like Jesus, we need to have a heart that is humble and obedient before God as well. Here at the end of this scene, we see Jesus purposefully trying to avoid the spotlight, right? He doesn't want to be talked about. He doesn't want to be known particularly, particularly not for, for what he can do. How many human leaders do you know you could say the same thing about? How many of us could even say that for ourselves? I mean, if we're honest, I think most of us, most of the time, love the spotlight. Oh, we may say we don't, and we may blush, and we may say, oh, shucks, and all that stuff. But in in our hearts, we love the attention. We love to be known for what we can do. We love to be known for what we have done particularly if we're in positions of authority or power. Here, Jesus rejects all of that. His one concern is to do what the Father sent him to do, to put the emphasis on what the Father wants, not himself. And folks, that should be our concern as well. We don't get to define our own personal ministry. Okay? We don't get to define or establish the guidelines for for what makes us tick within ministry. We as a church don't get to define that as individuals, as families. We are not here to draw the attention to ourselves or make this thing about ourselves. We are here to humbly serve God, to serve Christ as his body on earth. Second, you see Jesus show respect and deference to the Old Testament law over himself. Because even though he's cleansed the man, I mean, the man is clean, is he not? He is clean. Even though he's done that, he 
He wants the priest to declare it. He wants the man to be obedient. And we're reminded that Jesus didn't come to overturn the law. He came to fulfill it. He came to live the perfect life of obedience, and he expects us to do the same as well, to live obediently to what God has commanded. And if you think that that's just an obvious point, I would say to you, then you don't, you, you either are blind or you purposely don't see how believers live around you and how you yourself live. Kevin DeYoung, I haven't read this book. I just love the title of it. I need to read it. He wrote a book with this title. He called it The Hole in Our Holiness. And if I understand the premise of the book, he's, he's writing about how easy it is for those of us who love Jesus and we love the scriptures and we love the gospel and we love God's grace, how easy it is for us to just downplay the, ne- the necessity of holiness as if it's nothing. We, we love what Christ has done for us. We just don't want to apply that to this area or that area or that area. We don't want to live obediently because we're too interested in living for ourselves, because of the grace, because of the gospel, because, because of the freedom we now have in Christ. Some of us have come to believe secretly we can do whatever we want and that God will accept us no matter what. Well, he will accept us and his grace covers a multitude of sins, but that gives us no excuse for disobedience. Even Jesus here, the very Son of God, submits himself willingly to the law. And I would say that if he does that, then the commands and requirements of the Scriptures apply to us equally as well. Friends, Jesus doesn't look like any normal leader in our day, does he? He doesn't even like any normal person that we know. Unfortunately, I'm afraid he doesn't look much like us or we don't look much like him. He's humble, avoiding the spotlight. He's submissive to God's commands, not not flexing his authority or his freedoms over those commands. And as we think about ourselves and our, our ministry and our lives, both individually and corporately together, then I would challenge us and exhort us and urge us today to have this same heart that we would be humble and obedient before God, just like our Savior. Let's pray. Jesus, today's message is very simple. It's so easy for us to hear about humility and obedience and yet really to do nothing with it, to to just acknowledge that they are good things and not acknowledge that in any practical way in our life. But Lord, you have given us an example that we are not here for ourselves to draw attention to ourselves. We are here ultimately for for what you have done for us. Because of what you have done for us, we are here to do what you have commanded us to do. You expect obedience from us as your children. Too many of us make excuses for our disobedience. The hole in our holiness is so large that it is embarrassing and shameful. And so, Lord Jesus, if there are specific areas in, in the lives of the people here this morning where these two points are are pressing, are 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 needed, I pray that your spirit will do what only you can do to reveal those. To bring things to mind that need to be changed, to bring pride to mind, idolatry to mind that needs to be repented of. So that as we live out what it means to be a Christian, a little Christ, a follower of Jesus, it won't just be the banner that we wave. It'll actually mean something. It'll look like something. It will affect 
affect us in ways that are real and that will make us truly different from the people around us. Not because we're better, but because you are better. You're better than all of those things that this world offers. Help us to remember that. We thank you for your word. It's always convicting. We thank you, Jesus, for your life and for your ministry, for, for your sinlessness, for your example. We thank you for the salvation you offered us by dying for us and for our sins on the cross. And this morning, our songs, our prayers, and our time now in your word are just a very tiny, tiny thank you for all that you've done. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for letting us see your word this morning. It's in your name we pray. Amen.